You're listening to Fair Game with your host, Robert Smith. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Fair Game podcast. This is Fair Game number 302, and this is Rick Frenette. Rick, welcome to the show. Oh, glad to be here. That was a super quick intro, but honestly, I looked at your bio on your website, man. I, I didn't, I don't even know where to start. You have got quite the resume in the fair industry. Well, I've been around, I guess you could say, yes. So, and uh, worked with a number of great fairs and uh, helped them with a lot of their financial situation and uh, also dealt with a lot of politics in my career and I bet. somewhat to do a little bit with my moving around, but um, that's part of our industry. It's not going to go away. <laughs> so, well, and I'm sure when you, you know, when you're looking at some of the names that are on that, on that resume of yours, you know, from uh, big fairs, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, you got big, big names on that resume. Um, that's good. That certainly has to propose some political challenges at some point, because I don't know what those particular fairs, but I know with the number of fairs you've got, um, you know, governors that get involved and, and counties right. that get involved and state legislatures that get involved and they all seem. I, I know that just you know, growing up out here in New Mexico, the New Mexico State Fair for decades was a disaster. And yes, yeah, I followed like, that a long time, and their politics was much earlier than the ones I got into. But um, yeah, for sure, and and it was so political. And then eventually, um, I guess about twelve years ago, Susana Martinez, who was the governor at that time, um, put Dan Morning in on the board, and all of a sudden, you had somebody who actually knew what he was doing as far as like the politics aligned for a little while and he had enough air cover to prove himself and he in between him and his team and bringing Reithofer shows in completely completely changed that fair and so the new governor who would you would think would play new mexico politics and replace him she's kept him she's making the smart move because he's he's done great things with that fair yeah that is a good move and it it takes time that we don't everything that gets involved in a fair, like I said, because of the exposure of fairs, politicians love it. You know, that's where they're, they did their speeches, their grandstand, their soapboxes. And um, I don't always agree that the managers are running the fairs the way they would like them to be run for their own personal preference. And so that causes conflict and yep. you decide, is it a business or is it a political event? So. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, and you know, for years down here in New Mexico, there was um, a lot of talk that, people who were named fair manager, especially when it was the new governor that came in, that there might have been a, hey, thanks for that campaign donation. Here's your new position as the director of the fairgrounds and and the paycheck that comes with it. And I mean, politics, I'm just an entertainer. I just show up and make people laugh and happy. And uh, but it does even that that polit the political stuff even comes down to me. It even falls down at our level and and impacts how we're able to do business. So, um, you know, the less political fairs get the better but it's not going to go away completely but it's you're right it's there and you got to look at the few you know negative ones that put a little negative spin on anything there's more for positive sure. than negative and for sure uh, so you've got happens. you've got 30 some odd years in the industry that's in mean, three decades how did you get into fairs well we can go back longer than that because uh my my father was a own food operate businesses and had a couple concessions at the local county fair in, in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. I grew up with that. And then he actually bought into the fair. So the fair was owned by nine individuals, a different setup than a lot of fairs. 
it's still a great fair still it's now owned by the city foundation but back then it was owned by and he managed the fair for five years as a full-time job and that's where i really got to learn the ins and outs of you know carnival the finances the ticket sales entertainment booking and that kind of stuff as a as the son of the manager that was in when i was in my teens and then i just uh stayed with him and helped him with his other businesses until a an opening came up in Minnesota State Fair that my one of my best my best friend Jim Sinclair who was still there um, is from Chippewa Falls and also grew up with me and with my dad at the fair in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. He said we got an opening over here and you might fit the bill if you want to come over. So um, I walked away from the family business and my dad having a fair background was okay with that. So that's how it all started. And, uh, Got my teeth, you know, really wet at Minnesota with the size of that fair. But I realized because of the experience of the people that have been there longer than me, I would never be the manager of that fair. So I looked for some opportunities to move on. And Ohio needed help, and then Utah needed help, and then Wisconsin needed help. So that's some that's some big names. I mean, that's the, there's no slouching on your resume there. You've definitely um, left your mark on the industry, and since you left that side of the industry. You've now launched your own consulting company called Fair Advantage. Tell us about it. Yeah, when, I, when it was time to leave Wisconsin and basically retire, um, I decided I don't really want to walk away from this business cold turkey. It's been my life for my whole life. And uh, thought I'd see what you know people wanted to take advantage of my experience and uh, what maybe some expertise. I'm not sure about them, but... Uh, or learn from my mistakes too, but maybe I could pass that on to some people and do it in an affordable way that I, this wasn't my full-time pay my bills job. And uh, I think we're losing you there. The fair. And it's been very you know, eye-opening to me too to add on to my career what they're doing and then to offer my, my time with them and give them some ideas and some thoughts that they might be able to improve. So it's been great. And like I said, it's good for me because it's I don't need to be working eight hours a day, three, you know, 365 days a year anymore. So Yeah, that's it's definitely a 365 kind of job being a fair manager. Looking at the company's website, it seems like you've taken – basically 30 years of plus of experience and you've turned it around to benefit fairs all across the country. Yeah, I have. And um, I said, I've enjoyed it. And I think they've enjoyed my input. It's been a little slow last year, of course, with all the cancellations of our fairs, which we've all dealt with you on the entertainment end of it and stuff. Um, and I'm hoping that they can financially kind of come back so that they can ask for some outside help. I think that's the saddest part for me right now is that to get through this, COVID or whatever you want to call it, they need some outside help. They can't do it all inside, but they don't have the funds at the moment to, to bring people in. And uh, so, you know, I've offered some advice on a gratis basis too, to help a few fairs. You know, this is what I would do if I was in your chair, you know, you can take it or leave it, but um, sure. you know. Well, there's, so, there's so much that goes into event planning and putting these fairs on and executing a successful fair, you know, from midway planning to contracts, entertainment operations, finance, the whole kit and caboodle. Can you take a minute and share a little bit about your process on how you take a client from step one 
to completion? Well, I have a strong finance background. So my, my step process is deals with finances first. Where are we at? You know, you, you can't spend more money than you're going to take in just because that's, you know, I'm sorry, that's the act you want on stage or that's the things you want to do. Um, and you got to look at year-round operation. But that's how I start. I start with just looking at their, their figures, their numbers, their financial statements and say, you know, there's some cash flow here that needs to be addressed differently. You don't need to be spending this much money on that, this much money on that. Advertising, the best part of our fairness right now is social media to become your advertising and you don't need to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars anymore on, uh, you know, print or those kind of things. You can get it out there in the social media. Yeah, so that's my process. Starts with the finance end of it. Then I sit down with each. Usually, if I do an assessment of the fair, I'll ask to sit down with the key staff members and just talk about their thoughts and ideas and how they work with other departments and and what their feeling is just about the industry. I think the, you know, I'm one of the old boys, and we're seeing a lot of new young people come into it, but they're not coming into it with a lot of experience either. So, it's, and maybe not with the idea that they're going to be there 30 years. So they. You got to look at what they feel about the fair. Is it just a job where you have, you, if you don't have a passion for the industry, it's not a place you should be. And because you're not going to get, you know, rich running a fair or managing a fair, you know, if you work for a good company that, you know, might give you some benefits and stuff. But usually it's a part time job for a county fair person or it's a volunteer position. And so some decisions maybe aren't being made the way they should be just because they don't have the time or the resources to address them the way they should. So and that's my process. It all comes down to dollars and cents in business. I take my, my business background and my business degrees and just say, you know, let's run this as a business first and then let's see how, how the running as a business and then decide the business is fairs and year round rental facilities if that's what it is. And let's show a profit and let's, you know, so we can reinvest back into our structures and the different things and, and not just try to break even. And, and then you got to be a partner with everybody. I think what's, what doesn't happen out there is we don't realize that we're all working with this together. The entertainers and the you know, concessionaires, the, the uh, vendors, the people that come, we're all partners and we got to do this together. It's not just a matter of, I'm going to make money. I don't care what you do. We all got to make it work for each other, you know, right. and we lose that sometimes. And sometimes some of our partners, big partners, try to take over and tell you how to run your fair. That has to change, too. And I think in the last 10, 15 years, that definitely has changed. We don't see that control by some of our larger, you know, cash producing vendors on our grounds. And I'm, I love the carnival industry, but sometimes they've taken over a lot of small fairs just because, you know, they bring the most money back to the fair. And, the fair management being part-time or volunteer has to kind of follow their lead. So sure. It sounds like approaching, you know, when a client comes to you, approaching things from a real sound financial foundation is the key to helping fairs recover. Yeah, especially now. I and mean, that's the hard part is that how do we start when we don't have anything? And uh, even working, you know, I work with the Iowa State Fair on an annual basis and um, talk with them a lot and you know in Minnesota State Fair of course being my best friends being there they're trying to plan a fair you know basically you lost millions of dollars last year <laughs> and uh, they do have some reserves but 
if they don't fully recover this year, the worst problem is going to be in 2022, not 21. They yeah. don't make, you know, they got to make, they got to go plan a fair now that might have a little less of some of the, you know, big, I want to say big expense items, whether it's big name entertainment or different things, because they need to make up millions of dollars. So their profit has to be more. So, and I think what's going to happen is that they're all going to find out, you know, the people are still going to support the fair. Maybe some of that high expensive flash and stuff doesn't need to be there for all these fairs. So sure. If you had to take a guess as to when the industry gets back to or exceeds what we were seeing in 2019, when do you think that is? Well, it's, I definitely feel it's 2022 and beyond. It depends on how each fair is presented and what situation they're in. You know, we have cancellations going on now, complete cancellations. Ohio just announced they're not going to be open to the public. Right. Um, I spend my winters in California and, you know, they move their fairs or cancel completely. Now we have county fairs trying to, hey, we're going to do something and come back. But if that coming back is only 25 or 50 percent of your normal attendance and you spend as much money as you did before, you're going to be going backwards, not forward. So they're going to be longer down the road. So. Sure, because if you've got a, if you're still planning on going spending a million dollars to execute your fair, but you only bring in seven hundred and twenty thousand, all you did is just shoot yourself in the foot to the you know quarter million dollars plus or whatever the number is. Right, and I think Ohio that was them with their decision with the you know I think a good decision that they weren't they didn't have the ability to spend money not knowing if they were going to get it back. It was better to just leave it where it's at right now, not take on the expense and. Uh, Hope that they can, you know, get their non-fair events back and then have some cash so that they can put on, you know, the full fair back in 2022. So tough decisions. And, you know, none of us know what's going to be going on here in July and August when our major fair season comes on. I feel bad. I feel bad for the managers out there. I feel good that I'm not a manager right now. (laughs) Pat yourself on the back there, Rick. Pat yourself on the back with that one. <laughs> yeah, but if I can help, if I can help any of those fair managers. They know my numbers, so. Right. Well, let's look back real briefly at 2020. Um, man, when Houston canceled, uh, was that March 11th, partway into their run, yep. that was a big wake-up call for all of us. What were your thoughts when you found out Houston was shutting down, you know, eight or 10 days into their run? Well... You know, personally, I, again, this, a lot of the decisions made, which I feel bad about this whole pandemic, is that if politics and personal decisions are a mix. You know, I think somewhat with Houston, um, they didn't have a way to mitigate what was happening. It was, it was nothing, all or nothing. And that, that was maybe something they should have thought about before they opened the doors. But um, the city there and the government and the stuff decided that they couldn't have that risk of all those people in that place at one time at that that much of a, a risk for them. And so it's basically shut to shut it down where if you would have known something a month ago, you probably could have had a you know half a fair or whatever and spread people out a little bit more. But again, they said they have so much expenses and so much they put on. So yeah, my thoughts were it's just it's too bad they got caught right at the beginning. It's the same thing with the state shutting down, you know. Right. Uh, California and New York, just you know, nobody had any warning. It was, you know, today the restaurant was open, tomorrow you're closed. That's yep. <laughs> yeah. And that, that, that effect yeah. spread so far over the, over everything on the economy. I mean, it wasn't just our fares. We got, 
you think about fares coming back and and how important a role sponsors play in that and sure like the big four dealership or the wells fargo bank or whatever is still going to be there what about all the smaller businesses that make up so much sponsorship money and so many of those businesses either a have no money right now to do that or have gone out of business that's right yeah it's a and that's i think well i do think there'll be some few fares that we might not see again or they're going to combine with the neighboring county or do some other things um, we're going to find out, you know, how important our agriculture education is what we're all about, but how important is that agricultural competition anymore in the world we live in? It's important yeah. to the rural people. It's important to the people that do this when their business end, but at the same time, that isn't the, you know, the guests that we're bringing. So the, the guests that go beyond the agricultural part of it, um, is the fair, what we offer is that enough for them to come back or they say, Hey, I can find my entertainment someplace else. So, right. It, it really becomes a delicate balance of, um, you know, staying loyal to our, our livestock and, and agricultural roots and still providing a valuable entertainment product that people will come out and spend money to see. That's right. Yeah. It's just, a, when we talk about, you know, I've talked a lot with the IFE and different things on, you know, the federal government has really included fares in their, um, re, you know, recovery bills and all that stuff. And then I look at the fares and what do you have to manage? And we've talked about this, um, that fares are different than just having an arena with an entertainer coming in and bringing people in to sit and watch an act and, you know, maybe buy some food and beer. We got to deal with food. We got to deal with people interacting. We got to deal with animals and people. We've dealt with animals and people before. You know, we've had to keep humans away from animals with certain infectious diseases so we have experience with that but at the same time it's just all these pieces have to come together what does an entertainer expect from you as the fair to protect the entertainer what does the fair expect the entertainer to do to protect the guests same with the food being prepared in front of everybody um the days of having you know open ketchup bottles and mustard bottles and all that kind of stuff sitting out are going away and uh, everybody's got to do business a little bit different and um we all have to work together on what's how we help each other out through this whole thing. And I know you've been through that and how to, you know, what, you know, the, the hands-on acts, you know, that have people come up on stage, that probably won't happen for a while again and stuff like that. And inter- I suppose interact. it depends. I suppose it depends on where you're at. I just came from um, down in Florida. I was helping a friend with a couple of fairs because this time last year, I was supposed to have been at the Sydney Royal Easter show with one of my acts. So Sydney's not going to bring international in for a year or two until their funding comes back up and they can afford it. So I was sitting here with, with no fares and, and my friend called me up and said, Hey, come on down and help me with this in Florida. I was very happy to get back to a fair, but I can tell you um, the first fair we did Okeechobee down in South central Florida, probably 40 to 60% of people were wearing masks. But when you went up to Clay County, right outside Jacksonville, in the more red part of Florida in the north, <laughs> I don't think ten percent of people had masks on. But my feel, there was—I mean, Tasha had great signage up. You know, they rec- if you were going in the arena, there was a sign that said potential high risk area, mass highly recommended. I mean, let people make those decisions for themselves and and navigate this. And so I think in Florida, the fares are going to be fine. I worry about, like you said, New York, California, some of these other states, there could be some real trouble with those fairs. Yeah, and I see you know, the fairs of our experience, you know, with the animal stuff that putting up the signage and mitigating our liability, that's, they're used to that, you know? So we're yeah. telling people, this is what you should do. It's when that one person out there decides to come back at any 
you know, mass gathering and say, hey, you made, you got me sick or, you know, my dad died because he was at your event or something like that. And uh, those are the answers nobody has right now. So it's, uh, it, and you know, and you're going to have part of your population at the fair, like I said, wearing masks and wanting other people to wear masks. So you got to be prepared for those yep. people confronting each other. And if they, you know, if they don't want to sit close to somebody or want to be away from them, they'll avoid some areas and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, uh, I put it as right now, affairs, but they're really looking at it. They're starting over. It's like we're putting on our first fair with what's going on in the world today. So, and uh, interesting way to look at it. Right. You know, almost everyone that I have, I have had on the show, when we look back at March of 2020, figured that it would be like two to four months that we would have some issues with this. But, you know, by late summer, we'd be back in business. And um, like you said, here we are 13 months, almost 14 months later, and we're still getting cancellations on major events like the Ohio State Fair. At what point last year did you realize this was going to have a real long-term effect on the industry? Well, I think really hit home in the fairs that I was, you know, working with when a few of my contracts got canceled. <laughs> and then, but May, I think, I think the middle of May is when it really, the people had to make a decision for the, you know, our big flux of July, August, September fairs. And um, then you, you saw some of the big boys, you know, canceling and, and then the one, the bigger ones, Biggie and stuff like that are September, October, you know, they finally had to say, we can't, we can't make this plan anymore. We have no idea. And, and once the bigger ones start, then it, then it, you said, create a routing issue. You know, whether they cancel the fair because of the pandemic or they cancel the fair because once a you know carnival or a vendors going to this fair was always going to go to this fair next, but the three fairs ahead of them are canceled. They're not going out, so they're just saying, "I'm done too. I'm not going to go out for one fair." So right. So you couldn't plan anything. You couldn't sign a contract to commit anybody and that's part of that and same now you know i know they've talking to minnesota state fair and other big fairs they've had to re rewrite all their contracts for their vendors for this year to cover all the things that might be you know if we cancel you know that's you we have a right to cancel everything which they've never had that in the contracts before now lucky for our industry nobody's come back at anybody and say hey you promised me a fair or you right. promised me a business and you didn't have it, but you right. know, I'm sorry, you still owe me, you know, but that's, right. that's what's Well, great. and that's, we've talked yeah. about that. The entertainers within our sphere have talked about that. It's, it's one thing if your state county, your state or county health department came in and shut you down, like what happened in Miami, they were ready to open. They were like an hour, 30 minutes, something like that from opening county health came in and said, you're done. Close it. You're not opening. Well, what is the, that really is force majeure at that point, because they're being shut down. But when you have a fair that says, you know, I had one fair that canceled on me that said, you know, our state will let us open, but we're modeling, you know, 50% attendance, 60% attendance, and we're going to get it handed to us. So we're going to go ahead and cancel. Well, that doesn't technically qualify for force majeure because force majeure is the, the contract has to be really impossible to do, right. not just burdensome to do. And now, am I going to be the one that says, well, that's cool. You need to write me a check for the full amount. Uh, that's not going to be me. <laughs> I'm not going to be the guy that does that. Right. I've heard our, some of the new entertainer contracts, even for not fairs, but even for arenas and stuff, are they writing in that you have, if you're going to cancel, it has to be three months or something. I mean, they're 
when they put it in a window in there and say, I'm sorry, but you know, you're, you're less than three months out, you're going to have to pay me anyway. There's a lot, there's a lot of talk about um, what contracts are going to look like moving forward and what they're, what they're starting to look like. Um, my thing is my, my contracts that I issue um, address force majeure, but in this case, it for some of those cancellations was not would not have qualified as force majeure so it still comes down to enforceability to me even if you say you know if you cancel within 30 days of the event you got to pay 50 percent. okay are you going to sue the fair for that and make sure you know nobody's people aren't going to do that so i it kind of makes me it kind of makes me uneasy because i'm like i know when i show up at a fairgrounds and the fair says your shows are at 1 p.m 3 p.m and 5 p.m they expect me to fulfill my end of the deal and it feels like maybe we're not allowed to expect them to fulfill their end of the deal. But the reality is if there's no money there to pay it because they had to close because of a pandemic, what are, what are we going to do? Am I going to, no entertainer is going to sue, sue the fair, at least not on the grounds act side. I mean, I don't know on the big, on the main stage side, maybe, but no grounds entertainer, pig race, magician, juggler, whatever is going to file for, their 10 or 15 or $20,000 check, whatever it is. And then what every fair knows and nobody wants to book them. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, that, that is true. I mean, so yeah, we're, we're not working with just one fair. You work, everybody's working with everybody. So yeah. correct. And, and I feel my feeling is the way forward on this. You, you, I want the industry to survive because when this is all said and done in 22, 23, 24, I need healthy financially viable fairs that can book me. If they're closed and going out of business, that doesn't help me any as a vendor. No, right. And that's, and I think, you know, we've been through a lot, still the longest running industry, <laughs> you know, in 100, 200 plus years. So yep. they'll survive, whether they'll survive in the same format or the same um, presentation as in the past. That's what they have to look at. And, uh, you know, again, I, I really, you know, like more fairs to get some outside help, talk to, talk to other people and do some things rather than try to just do it on their own. I know that it has, one thing that it has done, it has stepped up the state association's information to their fairs, it stepped up the IFE, which I'm very proud of the IFE for what they're doing with the constant seminars now online yep. and things which we've never done before. State associations too, you know, and I'm well, from Wisconsin and now I'm back in Wisconsin, but they're doing an every Tuesday thing. They did, you know, so many seminars, so much information to their fairs. And that's what the association is supposed to be. Instead of waiting until that once a year convention to, you know, yeah. pass on some information. So that part's been great. So they have a lot of resources, but it just comes down again to planning for your situation and uh, getting the community to support you in a you know, small area and to come out and, uh, and realize what you know what economic impact you bring to them so they need to come and help support you to get back on board here and i think a lot of the auxiliary industries around the fairs felt it really bad too with not having hundreds of thousands of people visiting their city so yeah. yeah now in your three plus decades um in fairs <laughs> you've picked up a lot of knowledge you've seen a lot of things and you alluded to earlier there's a lot of very young fair managers out there right now who are trying to navigate this crisis, if you could sit down with them and offer some advice, what would you tell them? What would I tell them? Um, I tell them to be patient. Don't try to be the biggest and the best. 
you need to bring it, you need to take care, you know, find a customer base that's you're comfortable with that, you know, is, you know, whether it's 50% of what you had before or 75% of what you had before, or even if you think all hundred percent are going to come back, but plan your fare accordingly to that. Now look at your revenues that you would generate and spend the money for that group. It'll grow on its own afterwards, but you need to walk out of the next, this next fair with some money in the bank and start thinking about this happening again, you know, 50 years from now, need a reserve. No fares, fares aren't very good about high-end profits. And if they have any profits, they put them right back into infrastructure because the structure is so old. So but I'd say that most of the smaller fares are, need to back off a little bit and just put on a fair and you know spread out the picnic tables and spread out everything you can do, make the people happy. And if you want to you know, really get high tech and try to limit your attendance you know, each day or during the day, probably not a bad idea for one more year. Just find out who's coming and who isn't coming in advance rather than wait for that, what might happen on the day of show, you know? So and right. not bad rain insurance either. I mean, people can still have fun at fair and rain and they don't think they do. So if you haven't got a ticket in advance and that's the day you have to come and it's raining, I think they still would come then. So you, you do all right. But, and I, I think that whole advanced sale has to really get strong with the fairs that don't do that. They need to know who wants to come and who's going to be there. So they have an idea of what to plan for. Instead yeah. of this hoping they might show up. And, uh, well, and you alluded to earlier when it comes to marketing spend and ad spend that social media, it's so the, the cost per thousand uh, for views and awareness and on social media is pennies on the dollar compared to what a television commercial or billboards or newspaper print, those kind of things cost. The advantage to those advanced ticket sales, especially when you're using a, um, a company like Sapphire or, or, or others that provide advanced ticketing, you have all the data. You know who your customer is. You know what whether it's a family, whether it's it's mom that's making the purchase, dad making that you have email addresses to be able to do market, you know, retargeting, all those kinds of things. You are 100% correct. It has got to get stronger, especially among smaller fares. Yeah, it's... You know, and, and people and young people, they want to know that they want to know they have a ticket. They want to know that that's when they're going make plans and uh, not get up in the morning. I mean, there's still some of that and it's going to happen, but um, it's it's poor planning. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, we got to quit trying to put on a fair and then hope they need to know what they're planning for, or what type of fair we should put on. Sometimes I see that when looking at a fair, your production's too much for your attendance back. You know, I'm not trying to tell you to make the fair worse, but back off. A little bit of your expenses up front. Nope, some people aren't going to notice it as much, you know. Yeah. And you, you get into that with these volunteer boards and stuff. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they want the $50,000 act and where they probably could have had just the same attendance with a $30,000 act. And, uh, <laughs> you know, a little less, on, you know, share a little bit more with your vendors, you know, work together on advertising and things like that. But, you still got, you know, so I do that a lot with my assessments. I just take their attendance, average attendance over the last five years and say, you know, let's back, let's see how much per cap there is being spent with these people. And then let's back off according to that. You know, we know all these numbers, just work them backwards and, and work a bunch of, you know, data. It's, the world of data is, is great nowadays. You can get it. I mean, they, that's how you uh, manage baseball teams. That's how you manage football teams. That's how you, you, do, you know, do your draft and everything else. It's all based on statistics and, 
and uh, data, and they need to take advantage of those computer resources and, and analyze that data. And I, that is something that you asked me, what do I do? That's looking at financial statements. That's the first data that I analyze. How much are they spending? Where are they spending? Are these numbers really true? You know? Oh, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> and a lot of that where the attendance is not anywhere near what is really <laughs> happening. Exactly. So. I've spoken with fair managers who when they the first year they actually went to full online ticketing and they got people to fill out the the data, which, you know, what kind of concerts do you like? What kind of this? What kind of that? And they looked at zip codes and where they were coming from. They went, we've got a huge population of people that come here and, you know, we need a Latin night or we need, um, you know, we need a, a different kind of pop night or different country artists. So we, they don't they don't want the they want the younger country artists. So they want the the older country artists all that data and all of a sudden they execute on it and they go, we cleaned up that night. Right. And it was because of the data, all because of the data. And, right. and you execute it, like I say, not, it's not like sending a mailing to everybody in there. You just go right back on the internet and social media and get that information to them. And it's amazing how it grows on its own. And, sure. And well, and when you look at Facebook's ad product, I've, I've been telling fairs for years when, um, I've taught marketing classes at some of the conventions. We are done with the day where you have to pay as a fair for the one 30 second ad that always sounds the same. You know, oh, the county fair is coming to town, get your tickets now and put it on television. You can create 80, 100, 200 pieces of content. Like if you've got your country music artist is coming to town, you know, it's, I, it, I don't know, whoever's Carrie Underwood, whoever's coming out. You can create a piece of content around that and target only the country music fans or fans of Carrie Underwood or fans of in your area. You can, if you've got your Latin night, you can target those people. You can target people that like rap music, that like all those types of things, all those things. And you can put out all these different bits of content and go directly to the people that are most likely to buy on them. Right. No, and that's right. And I think, you know, fairs learned, you know, when they didn't have a fair and they put on these food events or different events that people could drive through and stuff, they found other other sources of revenue year round, too, that they could, I think they still need to continue. Yeah. Um, the Wisconsin State Fair, you know, cream puffs is a big food item there. Um, and now, and they sold them at fair time, you know, the week before the fair, they would do deliveries to businesses during the fair. You had to drive up during the fair. Now, since they didn't have the fair last year, they sold cream puffs, flavored cream puffs at different holidays. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so basically it's become a year-round operation and that's revenue back to both the vendor and to the fair. And those are the things I think, you know, that leads me to the next thing of keeping the fair in front of your people year-round. And that's what those food items, you know, they realize that, hey, people love the fair, they want to support it and they will, by having your food items without a fair, but you had your food drive through, you did whatever else you did. You had drive-in movies on your fair park, you, lots of things you did. You kept that fair in their eyes all year round. So they're waiting to come back. I'm not disagreeing with that. It's just, uh, will our, you know, will our world and our pandemic let them all come back? So, <laughs> will our politicians let them? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and then, then all the, you know, the different views and I don't want to talk politics again. I'm, I've been dead for 60 years, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i tell you it's i'm just looking forward to getting back out on the road um i was really glad to talk to so many fairs that were able to do a fair food drive-through or something of that nature that and i think they've 
they learned. Um, let me back up. I think one of the real values of what happened under with this COVID pandemic is that fairs that like to sit there in their board meetings and say, well, we've always done it this way. We're no longer allowed to say, well, we've always done it this way. They had to innovate. They forced them to innovate. I have spoken to fairs that literally said, you know, we, we did this fair food drive through thing and we realized part of our problem this whole time has been how we route traffic into our parking lot for our fair. If we can do that, if we can move the traffic pattern this way, we will get people in the door faster and they will complain less about the traffic in the parking lot. Mind blown. Yeah. Because they saw something different. Well, we were, I think that's if they paid attention, like I said, and they, they learned from this and did some things. Convenience is what we had to sell without having a fair. I mean, everybody, restaurants, bar, you know, you had to have takeout, you had to have convenience, you had to have people to walk up and separate and pay without contact, you know, cashless payments and all that stuff. And so that's the lessons people pay for convenience. So you got to take that into your fair now and add those elements to it if you never thought about it before. Make it comfortable for them to walk, you know, wider walkways and different things like that, maybe less vendors. And so, yeah, we have to change, but I think there was a learning process and the good, strong fairs that have good, good, you know, people, good management are gonna, they'll grow. It's gonna take a couple of years, but they'll go bigger and better than ever before. So. Completely agree. Rick, listen, we're just about out of time here. I'm super glad you could be on the show. Before we go, everyone who comes on my show goes through a little series of speed round questions. Six quick questions. You give your best response. Are you ready? I'm ready. Question one, funnel cake or cotton candy? Funnel cake. Best concert you ever attended? Best concert I ever attended? Probably Kenny Rogers. Name a fair you haven't been to but would love to attend? The Easter show in Sydney. You got a favorite movie? It's um, Animal House. Last book you read? Just fiction with uh, David Baldoso series. Um, Perfect. Uh, and assuming cost is no issue, what's the first place you travel when the pandemic is officially over? To the Greek islands. Ooh, Greek islands. I'm all about islands. You and I both have that in common. I will go to an island any day. <laughs> Rick, listen, where can folks learn more about the Fair Advantage? You can visit my website at uh, fairs-advantage.com. Fairs-advantage.com. Fair Fair-advantage.com. Excellent. Rick Fernet, former fair manager, founder and CEO of Fair Advantage. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Robert. You've been listening to the Fair Game Podcast. Fair Game is a production of Robert Smith Presents. For more information, please visit robertsmithpresents.com.